Hello and welcome back to What is Your Working Class, the podcast dedicated to exploring the variety that exists in working classness. And today I'm joined by Dr. Lisa McKenzie. To stay up to date on all new episodes, make sure to follow us on Twitter at What Is Your Work One and on your chosen podcast provider. Thank you so much for listening and hope you enjoy the episode. Hey Lisa, how are you? I'm good. I'm just I'm I'm recovering from the corona. <laughs> oh, joys. How's it been for you? You know what? I'm I'm not going to moan because it, you know we're two years in and this is the first time that I've had it. And yeah, it knocked me off my feet for a few days, but you know it's been fine. I've been yeah. at home watching loads and loads of just like detective programs. <laughs> from oh. IT from ITV, you know, like Poirot and Miss Marple and all oh, that sort of daytime TV. Yeah, I've been just watching, yeah. you know, and Flog It, loads of Flog It. But I oh. love Flog It anyway. I mean, that is my favorite program. So I've been watching Flog It and just sort of being a bit snotty and a bit headachy. But you know what? I'm all right. That's I'm good. ready for the fight. That's good. Should we start with maybe first question being what is your class background? Um, I'm working class. Yep. That's my that's my class background. That's my class foreground. <laughs> that's that's who I am. I'm I'm very working class. I'm very proud of being working class. Probably I've always been very proud of being working class, apart from a few years, probably teenage years. I mean, I was brought up in a mining community, so I was brought up in a place called Sutton in Ashfield in Nottinghamshire. Um, and my granddad was a miner and we lived in you know, the council houses near the pit. Mm. In fact, my dad still lives in the same house. And I grew up in a mining community. And I, in, I suppose it was, you know, I was born in 1968. So I was born as deindustrialization was happening. And, you know, as we all know, the system doesn't really move very fast. It, keeps, it stays the same. So I was so I went to school in Sutton in Ashfield that was a place that had got loads and loads of mines, lots of pit. I mean, ev- in Nottinghamshire, where I'm from, every mile there was a new there was a pit. So, you know, it was the, the number one employer in the whole area. But then also we had lots of textile factories as well. So my dad, my, my granddad worked down the pit. My dad worked down the pit. My uncles worked down the pit. My cousins worked, you know. All the lads I knew worked down the pit, but mm. the women also had jobs as well. We all we so we worked in textile industries, so hosiery, making socks, tights, Marks and Spencer's knickers. They were, you know, we made all of that in this particular area in Nottinghamshire. So when I grew up, my education or my schooling, it was re- it really was. We used to call it factory fodder. And it was really, they were educating you enough to go and work in a factory or down the pit. And, and I know there's a lot made of that, but it's absolutely true, isn't it? You know, th- th- there was no expectation of us doing anything other than working in a factory or working down the pit. Now, that was all brilliant for generations before us. Mm. But in 1984, when I left school, my dad went on strike because he was a minor. And my dad went on strike try and stop the pit closures and you know history's told us that that you know that we lost that fight my dad's pit and every pit in the in the country closed but also at the same time the factories closed as well Mm. so all the factories because they they all got you know all the work got sent abroad so at 16 I left school my dad was on strike 
and I went straight into a factory. So I went to work at the Pretty Poly factory, Pretty Poly Tights, yeah. with my, where my mum was and my aunties and my cousins. And, you know, but both of those industries now have completely gone. You know, there's there's not, nothing left of those industries at all. So, you know, I was brought up as working class, you know, in every sense of the word. Mm. There was no expectation for me to do anything more than work in a factory. And to be honest, you know, I was, I suppose I was all right with that because I didn't know any, you know, I didn't really know anything different. You know, my life was, it was about my community and my family. And I think that's where the pride came from, because I remember being a very little girl sitting on my granddad's knee and my granddad telling me how important we were, you know, and he said to me, we're working class people. We're good people. We, are, we keep the, the miners keep the lights on. Mm. And I tell you what, now, wouldn't it be great if we had groups of people who understood how important it was to keep the lights on? Mm. Because we seem to have forgot that and look what mess we're in. You know, I grew up in a community that knew what we did was worth something. We also knew that, you know, we might not have had the best education. We also knew that we didn't have a lot of money, but we had pride in our position in society, but also in our communities as well and who we were, you know. And then over the years, that got eroded. I mean, it really eroded mm. to the point, you know, and that's what I was saying earlier I was always very proud of being working class until probably I got to about 18, 19, when like the culture shift happened, the factories were closing, the pits were closing, you know, girls who worked in factories were considered, you know, these call us factory slags, you know, the the time of money and, you know, Thatcherism and, and we looked old fashioned and left behind. We did. That's how we looked in the 80s, you know, because we were still sort of living in commute, very tight working class communities. Mm. And I suppose at 18, 19, you're aware that you're not fashionable. Mm. And I knew I wasn't fashionable. You know, I knew I didn't come from a fashionable place. That was the first time in my life I really started to think about me being working class and that might not be a good thing. Because up until then, I was like, yeah, we're working class. We're the best. Mm. You know, I used to feel sorry for people who weren't working class. (laughs) (laughs) I used to think, oh, imagine, you know, being posh and your mum and dad sends you away and they don't want you. Mm. You know, they send you away to posh schools. Imagine that. And so, but when I got to 18, 19, that sort of, late 80s mid to late 80s I think the culture shift of what it meant to be working class really started hitting my generation um and then obviously since then you know you know as we all have we you know working class people do all the time we've had to survive so the industries close our industries the things that we know close you know we get made redundant from everything our lives change massively and you know we cope with it Mm. and that's one of the things that I'm really proud about being working class is because we are really resilient you know 200 300 years of history you know we always been forced out of jobs and out of communities and out of places and we survive and our culture and you know and and the brightness that we've got survives although saying that I'm not quite as optimistic today as as I might have been a few years ago so Um, that answered your question yeah (laughs) just a bit it answered a couple of other questions (laughs) 
on that point of the culture shift and the way culture has changed so that rather than working class cultures being around a very maybe a work-based sense of identity of the community was gathered around be working in a factory or in the pits and now what we can see today of what is the modern working class maybe of people having to work in call centers yeah yeah or beauty delivery drivers delivery drivers drivers where, yeah yeah uber almost, drivers yeah, yeah where you've almost got a um a shift from uh, productive industries to more consumptive industries and service well, as well i mean it yeah. really makes it it makes a difference in how you see yourself actually because mm. i think when you are like I said, my granddad left school. Well, I don't think he ever went to school, actually. But, you know, if my granddad couldn't read and write. And that was not an uncommon thing. But my granddad knew he was important because he kept the lights on. Yeah. And so he had a pride in who he was and what he did and how important he was to society. And also we'd got, you know, we were part of strong trade unions as well, strong community groups. And we did something that was really important. And I think when we shifted from being manufacturing to service, the culture change, it changed because we stopped being something that was really important to society. Mm. And the narrative about it has changed, almost sort of went back to that sort of 150 years ago from, mm. you know, work being in service. You know, your job is to serve others. Yeah. You know, and... And I think that, you know, that has been a real culture shift for working class people. And I think that it's not the stuffing out of us, to be honest. Mm. I really I really do think that that pride that I grew up with and that sense of community and sense of belonging and who I was, I think it's really difficult now for other people to have that because working class people have been fractured. You know, we we don't work in places where you know, where there's a collective identity and there's a collective goal. You know, our collective goal when I worked at the factory with my mum was to, like, piss off the bosses as much as possible. That was our collective goal. You know, my mum was a trade union rep and my mum's job was to piss the managers off. And, you know, and that was her job. And and all and our job, as we, we all worked there, was to help her do that. You know, we used to, you know, it was... We had some control over you know how much we earned our negotiation with the managers and you know we would be awkward I mean you get sort of I worked in a factory with 500 women you know and women you know and and the managers were all men obviously (laughs) and you know my mum would sort of come on the shop floor I mean I remember her walking around and and I never understood it at the time because I was like 16 17 18 so she used to walk around the factory and if it was a hot day my mum would be looking at the temp, taking the temperatures in the middle of the machines and she'd be looking how hot it was. And I used to think, what is she doing? What's she doing again? <laughs> you know, and then she'd just go, right, it's too hot. Everybody stop working. And everybody would stop working. And then yeah. she'd go to the managers and she'd say, right, we're one, temp- we're one degree above whatever. I want some drinks bringing for these girls. And the managers used to have to do it. And, you know, we'd get some orange squash or whatever. But, and I used to think at the time, why does she do that? It's one degree. But I understand now why she did it. Because one degree can be two degrees, can be three degrees, can be five. And before you know it, you're working back in a sweatshop. Or you're in an Amazon warehouse giving birth in a toilet. 
And so our job was to make sure that we got what we deserved, really. And I think that power dynamic really has gone now. And it it breaks my heart, really, that does. Mm. Because it is one of those strange things about culture today, because we have such easy access to everything. We can literally get food delivered to our door. We can get music streamed online. We can do all of these things. There's almost an immediacy now to whatever we want. And so, there is a hidden workforce of working yeah. class people. And I think that's what's important. That's what that's what's been lost for me is that hidden workforce of working class people, whether they are here or whether they're in China or, you know, the international working class mm. are hidden. We were we were visible. You know, when mm. we come out the factory gates on a Friday afternoon, there'd be thousands of us pouring out. Yeah. Because, you know, we'd be coming out of all lots of factories. We were visible. We were visible in the community. The pubs relied on us. The shops relied on us. You know, it was a, it was it worked. But now we've got these hidden, you know, working class people are still doing all the work. Mm. They are still keeping the lights on. You know, they're keeping the deliveries moving. They're keeping yeah. everything going. But they are more hidden and more atomized. Do you think that the nationalization of industry, so in the case of because the international working class of the factory workers in China, because they are outside of the day-to-day experience, that is what is contributing to the hiddenness of actually going, oh, there is a working class. Yeah, because I suppose one of the things that we buy now are not made anywhere near us. You know, if you go and buy some knickers from Marks and Spencers or wherever, it's just an item. When I used to buy knickers, I knew that my auntie made them. Do you, do you know what I mean? I knew how they'd been put together because I'd seen them being put together. Or, you know, my aunt, one of my aunties worked in a lace factory, you know, and so you'd look at, you know, it, it, they, these were things, you, you saw the sum of the parts. So you understood that these things didn't just appear. And I think that is something that's really been lost of us because, you know, I and I'm guilty of doing it. You know, I order things from Amazon and mm. just press a button and then it comes. And I have no idea where it comes from. I don't know where it came from. I don't know who's packed it. I don't know. I've got no idea. No, I've got no clue. And I think what it's done, I mean, I mean, obviously, I mean, this is, I suppose, classic marks. Mm. You become alienated from from the product and you become alienated from your own labour. And even when I worked in the factory in the 80s, again, I didn't know how to explain this. I didn't know how to express this because I didn't know this until I went to university when I was an adult. I mean, I went to university when I was 31. Mm. And all of a sudden I started, I was introduced to some theory, to Marx. And all of a sudden, the language that I'd always had about who I was and what I'd done, I could read it somewhere else. Mm. And it was like a light going on, actually. And I remember reading Marx and thinking about alienation and me being alienated from my own work. And I thought about me in the factory. You know, and when I worked in the factory, we used to we just used to make tiny parts of the the, I used to make tights. Mm. So you never, ever learn how to make a pair of tights. Because yeah. you were only making a tiny, you know, your own, I mean, I used to sew the gussets up, but my mum used to do the toe seaming. And so you never, I never learned. So I worked in a factory for 10 years and I never learned how to make a pair of tights. 
Mm. And that is what happens when you're alienated from your labor and from the product. And obviously I knew that that's what's happening to me. You know, you spend 10, 11 years working in a factory, you'd think you'd be able to come out with something. But actually you, you don't because you're only doing one tiny little job. And then over, you know, over mechanization and over the years, mm. and you know, it'll be the same now for people in China who's making tights. They will only be making some, you know, a tiny part of that. Mm. And so, you know, we're never, you know, we're not skilled up. And I think, you know, going to university helped me vocalize the things that had been happening to me, but not only just to me, to other working class people as well. Mm. What made you decide to go to university? I suppose what had happened was as soon as I could legally start work, went into the factory and I stayed in the factory, you know, for all that time. Uh, and then in 1999, right at the end of 1999, my mum died. I mean, mum had been everything, you know, she, my mum was everything to me. You know, she was the person that I went to for everything. She, you know, she understood everything. She knew everything. She was wise. She, you know, and this person moved out, you know, was out of my life really suddenly. And I was just sort of left with a massive hole thinking, God, what, what do I do now? And I was just lost. And I suppose what I, what I did is I just started to think, well, you know, I should do something. Can I, I'm sure I could do more than this. Mm. And I found myself on an access course doing, I did um, access to so, social work. And the reason I did social work is as a working class woman, I thought, well, social work, I could go to university and I could be trained as something and then I'll get a job. And it was less risky, mm. you know, because it was a vocation sort of thing. So it was like, I didn't know, I didn't know anything about universities at all, nothing. But I did know that I could go on, to, on a course and do this access course that I didn't even know at the time you could go to university with it. Mm. I just was searching for something. Um, and then when I got on the access course, I discovered that actually I really enjoyed being there and I didn't enjoy the social work bit. I didn't want to do that. Mm. And that's when I found sociology and I ended up going to the university of Nottingham doing sociology, which if you know, if you had told me that six months earlier, there's no way I would have done that because it would have been too much of a risk. And I also in Nottingham, we've got two universities. We've got Nottingham Trent university, which is the old polytechnic and we've got the University of Nottingham, which is the posh one. Mm. Me, not knowing anything about universities, I just went to do social so sociology. Mm -hmm. It was at the posh one. And I'd never been. And it's funny because that the university was a mile and a half away from my house, but I'd never been to it ever. Right. Not once. So I found myself as a 31-year-old on, on a sociology degree course in Nottingham, where I live, with thousands of 18-year-olds from the South <laughs> who had been to private education. I didn't know what was going on. I was like, what the fuck's going on here? <laughs> I didn't know. There was no other people with my accent, no other working-class people, and no other sort of mature students. The only other people who would come from Nottingham were people who were cleaners and worked in the canteens. And I was just like going on but you know when I got there I found my feet I really enjoyed it 
I didn't make any friends. I, I wouldn't know what anybody was called. Either. I can't remember anybody. Because when I got there, I was there for me and I was enjoying it. And all of a sudden, all these things in my life about being working class and about being a working class woman, they started to have legs. Mm. So all of that, those thoughts when you're working class, you know, all of those thoughts of being factory fodder and not being good enough and not being, you know, or not work. I mean, the other narrative that they throw at us is the reason you fail. I'm doing that in quotation marks. Mm. The reason we fail is because we don't work hard enough. Mm. And you t- and when you're working class, you take all of this in. You go, yeah, yeah, it was my fault. The reason I didn't do well at school was because of this, or the reason I didn't get to this university is because of it. And you blame yourself. Um, and going to university and doing sociology, I started to learn the language of class, but class theoretically. And I was like, okay. <laughs> I always thought this was not my fault. And now I know it's not. Because mm. these people who stood up on these platforms are saying it's not my fault. Mm. And that was probably the worst thing they could have done for me. The best thing, but the worst thing. Mm. Because the minute I started learning that and finding that out for myself, guess what? I didn't need them anymore. Because mm. then I started to tell them. And I suppose that's where my career has gone over the last 12, 13 years. Mm. You know, I've become the, a working class academic, you know, and I know how the class system works. And I know this is not my fault. And I know that the middle class, you know, live their lives on the unearned advantages that they've got. You know, I know that. And you cannot tell me anything else. You know, your advantages that you have had in your life when you are middle class are mostly unearned, Mm. undeserved and unearned. And most of the disadvantages that working class people have are equally unearned and undeserved. And that is what university taught me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure they would have had that in the brochure. (laughs) I'm sure they, I'm sure they didn't, and they still don't, which is why, which is why I get into lots of trouble with the university because I say this very openly. Don't yeah. you know? Don't don't bring me into the university. Allow me to read books, and then when I read them and I understand them, go, oh yeah, well we didn't mean it really. Yeah. You know, we didn't mean you. We just we just meant in theory. And it's like, well, what when the theory walks in your door? Because sometimes the theory walks in your door and they never expect that. And I think that's why I always talk to working class people about talking about being working class. Because the one thing the middle class don't expect is for us to be walking into the door. Mm. We're all all right while we're the theory. When we manifest into real people, that's when we start to become a problem. I want to talk a little bit about your book, uh, Getting By. Oh, yes. Um, Yeah. uh, I mean, it's such a brilliant book. How did it come about? That came out of when I was on the access course. So when I was on the access course, I was doing this social work thing and somebody from the University of Nottingham came and did a talk about sociology. And um, they said, and remember, we were at the access course. We were mostly people like me. And we're all working class, mostly women, mostly sort of got kids and everything. Mm. And somebody from University of Nottingham came and said, has any of you thought about going to do sociology at the University of Nottingham? And he talked about this book. 
which is called Poverty the Forgotten Englishman, mm-hmm. was a piece of research that was done at Nottingham University about St. Anne's in Nottingham, which was the council estate where I lived. And when I heard that, I went, oh, my God, I did, did, can you go to university and l- read about places where I live? Mm. And they was like, well, yeah, you can do more than that. You can do research about where you live. Mm-hmm. And I was like, and I, and I swear to God, I did not know that you that, that happened. I was 31, 30 years old, 31, did not know that that's what you could do at university. I know because I didn't know. Mm. I didn't know anybody who'd been to university. I didn't know anything. And so I went home that night, got this book, and I read it, and I thought, I want to tell my story. I want to tell the story of St. Anne, but from my perspective. Because although it's a great book, it is told from the perspective of, you know, researchers at the University of Nottingham, mm. not women, you know, not women that lived there. So I, and I realised that there was voices that were missing, which is bound to be, it was written in the 60s. Mm. And I thought, I'm, you know, me, me never being shy to be forward. I thought, I'm going to do, I'm going to do this. <laughs> and so while I was at the University of Nottingham doing sociology, I, I always knew I was going to do it. I did. No, I didn't. I always imagined, I always had a little dream that I might do yeah. it. A dream that I didn't tell anybody about. And I always thought I won't really, but I'll just say that I will. And I and I got um, the funding for the masters, and then I got the funding for the PhD, and then ten almost ten years after starting the University of Nottingham, so I and I did it. And even though even when I was doing my PhD, every day I thought I'm not really going to do this. This is not really going to happen. <laughs> and it and it did, and it happened, and I you know and and getting by came out of the research that I'd done. Uh, on my PhD but it's not the PhD and the reason it's not is because it took me a long time and a lot of soul searching and a lot of pain to be able to write in that academic style and I've never been comfortable with it and I don't like it and now I'll and I won't write like that ever again Mm. uh, because it's crap horrible and no one understands it and it's just and it's elitist Mm. So I'm not going to write like I've made a decision. I'm not going to, I don't have to, so I'm not going to. So when I looked at the PhD, which was all about my community where I'd lived in St. Anne's in Nottingham and all about the women who'd lived there, I realised that they, they were, they had no access to this. They couldn't read that. Mm. I could barely read it. Yeah. You know, it's almost like I had to write this stuff and then translate it into academic language. Mm. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't natural to me. So when I decided, when when I got asked to publish it as a book, I said I will, but I need to take all the theory out of it, and I need the language to be accessible to everybody, and I also need the price to be accessible. Mm-hmm. And anybody who's listening to this who's thinking about getting your PhD published, be very care- think very carefully about what you want from that, mm-hmm. because the academic publishing system does not favour you as the writer. You know, they what, what they normally do with the PhD is they will publish it as is, and then they'll turn it into a hardback and it'll be about 90 quid. Yeah. And then, you know, libraries will buy it and that's it. And I thought, there's no way I'm letting my work, they're not doing that to me. Yeah. So 
when I met with Policy Press, he was actually been really good. They were really good. And I said, this has got to be accessible. They went, yeah, right, we'll do that. And it became a softback. But because it was a softback and because I'd taken all the academic language out of it, it wasn't allowed to be called an academic book. It's a trade book. Right. <laughs> and that is where some academics have a problem because they don't want a trade book. Mm. I don't care. But that's the snobbery and how academic publishing works out. So the book Getting By became an access. I think it's an accessible read. Mm. You know, it's... Sorry, I don't know that. Nobody asked you. <laughs> Nobody asked you. Do you know that? I don't know if that was a Google or an Amazon, but I... It was an I, Amazon. It was an, an Amazon. Oh. Bitch. <laughs> Well, she got nothing to say now, has she? Uh, <laughs> but, Amazon um, re- reviewing books from afar. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I don't know that one. You should know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, so the book became accessible. Lots of people read it and it really shocked me and surprised me. And I, yeah, I was just really shocked. Mm. I remember when it first came out, The Guardian did a review of it. And I, you know, I didn't know they were going to do a review of it. Mm. And I got all, and, and when I got, when it was reviewed on that day and it was in the newspaper, I got like 700 emails from people. And I was like, oh my God, I would literally shut the curtains and head. I was so yeah. shocked because, you know, it sort of threw me into this vision. Mm. You know, I, I did know they were going to review it. I just didn't realise it was going to have an impact. Because what they did is they asked me to write something about it, and that and it went in the Guardian. That was what happened. The thing I wrote about my book went into the Guardian the day that they reviewed it, right. and they had this terrible photo of me, and I looked like Myra Indley, <laughs> and um, and uh, they had this really terrible photo, and, it, and I, you know I looked grim and miserable and you know hard faced. Mm. And uh, I'd wrote this article and that day I just got bombarded with like people going, oh, my God, who are you? You you know, you're yeah. an interesting person and you've said something that I understand. And, and yeah, that really kind of freaked me out, actually. And then since then, it's been like that ever since, mm. because what I found is when you talk about being working class, working class people really need to talk to you because it's one of those things that. It's, it's an experience that, that we experience in Britain, the class, that working class experience. It can be different for all of us, but there's one thing that's very similar, and that's about the power relationships mm. that we have with the middle class. And I talk about those power relationships a lot, and people hear it and go, you know what, I, 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 know, I know that, yeah. I, I've lived that. In the same way as when I suppose when I went to university and I was reading things and was open to things that I'd not seen before and I connected to it. I think when I talk about class and being working class and power, people want to tell me about that. You know, they go, oh, I, I know that, you know, and I probably don't, I don't have the words that you've had to explain it, but I know that. I know that feeling. I know what that is like. I know how painful that is. And that, is what I think has happened over the last sort of 12, 10, over 10 years, really, mm. is that I talk about class a lot and I talk about being working class and I talk about 
the the position of working class people in Britain today and people connect to it Mm. and that frightens people I think (laughs) yeah I mean it's sort of amazing how you position yourself and how you talk about class because you're very active on social media and you appear every you've done op-eds a number of op-eds for uh, rt.com Mm. as well i love the one about... any of those now though am i yeah but um, because they've been talking of it <laughs> yeah god but um it is the idea of how to engage with people and i suppose do you think there's any dangers or risks in uh, using social media platforms just because of well it's twitter we know what twitter can be like if I'm being honest, there is a massive risk. My last job, not the one I'm in now, but my last job, I got into loads of trouble for the things that I say on Twitter. I'm going to say it, fuck it. I worked at, so I worked at Durham University, right. which is very posh. Mm. And obviously me, being me, talks about I talk about being working class and what being working class is about. And sometimes people get upset about that. And sometimes on Twitter, I tell them to fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> because I'm not being nice to you. I'm not being nice to you when you start coming at me saying, or, you know, yeah. I'm going to say to people, listen, I'm talking about an experience that you deny in here. Mm. And uh, yeah, Durham University was very, very unhappy with my working classness yeah and uh yeah i got into loads of trouble actually and so you can get into a lot of trouble you know but i do say this if i wasn't talking about class if i was talking about something else would it be as dangerous because mm. i don't think so i think it's that and i think that is what is really telling for all of us when you talk about class in britain and you talk about it in certain circles and certain places, for example, in universities, which are structured in a way that working class people are not welcome unless you're cleaning up or Mm. washing the pots or making the beds. And I'm going to say it honestly because that is true. Mm. I have been in universities now for 20 years, 21 years, and the structure particularly of Russell Group universities, the more, you know, the posher ones. Yeah. The structure is anti-middle class. Hmm. Done. Said it. Why Why is that such a big deal? Why is that such a big deal to say that? Because we know that all institutions are structurally racist. We know that. We know that there is structural inequalities in, in all big institutions, and we admit all of that. And we try and do things to to, to stop it. Mm. At least we acknowledge them, unless it's class. And that we won't acknowledge. And we don't, not only do we not not want to acknowledge it, we want to, it's almost like acknowledge, like saying, yeah, it's here, but it's a good thing it's here. Yeah. Why do you think it's, um, why do you think class in particular has that, it is separate from issues of, Institutions race or gender yeah yeah I yeah. mean what is it about class that makes it be the black sheep of the situation because class is a power relationship just like gender is and just like race is um you know I'm not denying that there are power relationships between race and gender of course there are um and all of those things intersect absolutely but with class 
I suppose the people with the most power, and this is the difference, benefit from the system. So therefore, there's no reason at all for them to want to deal with it. And, and, you, and we can see that because when we look at class as so so we look at um class inequalities for a start it's it's not a protected characteristic Mm. so race gender uh sexuality and religion is you can't discriminate legally against those things Mm. but class is not a protected characteristic so you can discriminate on class and they will and there's no comeback yeah it's not even a thing but it is I think with class, I think the reason class is an outlier with this is because in Britain, our whole system is set up on class. It's class-based. Now, if we really started to tackle class inequality, class prejudice in this country, I think it would it, it would devastate a lot of the institutions. Mm. It would absolutely devastate them. And I don't even know if they... I suppose, I think it's very similar to the way that America is racialized. So in America, the deep connections between inequality, race and class in America is so endemic and so deep and comes from the very fabric of what made the United States. You know, the, the, the sort of racism and white supremacy in America is absolutely throughout their history. And it is for for the UK as well. So I'm not saying it's not there, but for us, class for me is deeper in the UK than race. And I, you know, I get a lot of stick for saying that, but I believe that because, you know, class, the class system and the class structure in Britain has allowed the elites and the middle class to go and colonize the world. You know, they built that system upon working class people in Britain before they went out and did it to everybody else. And so for me, that's the class system in Britain is so deeply ingrained that it becomes almost too difficult to cope with. It becomes too difficult to understand. And also, you know, we're starting to untangle this from race and gender, you know, this idea of genetics so we're starting to pull away from that with race and gender, but we don't seem to be doing it with class. So to, so now, if you were to say something ridiculous like black people are naturally have a lower IQ than white people, people know that that is not true yeah. and, the, the, and the science is wrong. If you were to say that about class, people don't know that's true. Yeah. Because... The very fact that the working class seems to have failed in life is evident that they're not as good. And because class inequality is not recognised as a characteristic that can hold people back, then the evidence is, well, that's why they're working class, because Mm. they're just not as good. And then you've got this extra thing called social mobility, Mm. which, you know, which... Every government, no matter what colour they are, what hue they are and what politics, all believe in this mythical thing called social mobility. Because if you do things to working class people, some of the cleverer ones will become middle class. Mm. That's why that's the problem of class. Because as long as we've got this mythical social mobility, 
where, and I, I remember, I don't know, about five years ago now, I was invited to Parliament. They had this select committee mm. and it was to talk about, actually it was that to ask the question, should class become a protected characteristic? Mm. And they were talking to, and I, I got invited as an expert and so they were asking, you know, about, oh, what should we do to the working class? You know, because if we did things to them, you know, we'd give some of them would would be socially mobile. And, you know, this thing, I mean, they all say it now, it's like a common thing. Oh, God, what is it? Aspiration. Aspiration. That's the word. <laughs> so all you need to do to working class people and to especially children is to get them some, you know, they need to be they need to aspire. So how do we do that? And that is actually the centre of all class policy in this country. What, do, what can we do to the working class to get them going? Mm. And when I was in Parliament that day, they, again, they started coming out with all this, you know, aspiration stuff. And I said, you're looking at this the wrong way around. Because in my experience of being working class, of living in working class communities all my life and everybody around me being working class is there is no lack of aspiration you ask any child in a school in any council estate in any part of the country you know what do you want to be when you grow up they have fantastic ideas they want to be bakers and footballers and bankers and lawyers and whatever they want to be everything because mm -hmm. small children are not they don't have they don't lack aspiration mm. what happens to them their whole life is they learn through experience that these things are not available to them mm. and that's and when i said that i said you're looking at this thing the wrong way around you're looking at what you can do to the working class why don't you look what you can do to the middle class because they're the ones that game in the system mm. So instead of looking at the working class to get them aspiration, why don't you look at the middle class and look at all the unfair advantages that they've got? And why does why don't the policy go at them? Mm. You know, why don't we end private education, private schools? Mm. You know, why don't we look at the way we test kids? You know, and, and, and realise that probably there's better ways to test children. And why don't we look at how industries especially in the culture industries how they are gatekept by the middle class why aren't we looking at these things because we know that they're there and they really didn't know what to say to me they yeah. just sat there they just sat there and I remember one MP for Portsmouth or whatever she was and I remember her saying to me she went no no I, I think she went I think it's definitely about aspiration she went I went to visit a school and she went in Portsmouth where I'm the MP you know very these very poor areas and I went and visited this school and um I was talking to the little girls and they all wanted to make cupcakes and I was like what's wrong with that yeah that is really aspirational You've got little girls who want their own businesses yeah. and want to make nice things for the community why is what is wrong with you? And yeah. she went, oh, perhaps that was a bad example. I thought, no, it's not. It's not. A, I thought it's not a bad example. It's that you don't understand. Yeah. You don't understand that when small children are saying they want to have a have a cupcake shop, 
is that's a lovely thing that they want to do. That is absolutely aspirational. It's just that you don't think it's good enough. Mm. You know, that is a child that is thinking about her own little business, making nice things for the people who she cares about. But you went, she's not aspirational. And I come up against this all the time, all the time. You know, that, that, that working class people are misjudged, misread and misrepresented. It's one of those things. They just do not, people in upper middle class positions just have a very limited idea of what success is. And that is their, what their own idea of success is, yes, of yeah, what they're yeah. used to. And I suppose it is just but, that point of we need but more it's, it's crazy, but they think that. So they think that, but then they gatekeep it. Yeah. And then they go, well, why aren't the working class doing it then? And it's like, well, we can't because you're in the way. Because you get in the way of it and you make sure that you take up as much space in there for you and your, your, your like. That's what you do. And you purposefully. And I think that's one of the things about class. The other thing about class is it is purposely reproduced. Mm. Actively and purposefully and willfully reproduced. I work in universities. I see that in, in the Russell Group universities. I see it all the time. The Russell Group University really and truly is about the reproduction of class. And the universities really struggle with me saying that. Mm. But it's absolutely true. You know, the, the, the way that they, you know, let students in and what grades that they get, the way that the culture of the university is when you get into it, the way that you get jobs from your degree and how that social networking works. Mm. It really is about the reproduction of class. And that is institutional. And so when I say that the that some universities, not all, because the university where I work now is not like that, mm. because the university where I work now is, a, is an ex-polytechnic and most of the students are working class, so it is not like that at all. But the more elite universities definitely are. You know, why is me saying that those elite universities are anti-working class? Why is that so dangerous? Why is that so bad? Because I'm just telling, I'm a researcher, I'm an academic, and I'm working class. Why can't you take my word for that? Yeah. Because I'm working class. Mm. I think that also maybe some of the people who work in these institutions will not see themselves like that. They might not recognise, and they might actually be very sympathetic and empathetic to it, but they don't really know how to address the university system itself or how no. they play a role into it because they're probably concerned about their own job and their own absolutely, issues. Absolutely, they are. They are, but that doesn't mean, you know, that's no excuse yeah. for reproducing a system that purposefully excludes, not just excludes, it's anti-working class. Hmm. And that is what I got in trouble for at Durham for saying yeah. <laughs> those words anti-working class because then yeah, that's that, then it's an issue yeah yeah and um and it's like what are you so scared of what are you so frightened of you know this you should go yeah this is obvious yeah because when we talk about race or gender or sexuality it's obvious when there is structural inequalities it's obvious mm. but the only one that isn't is class yeah and it's quite shocking to me that people that were quite open and willing and to accept 
that institutions can be institutionally racist, institutionally misogynistic, you know, that they can accept those things, can't accept that they can be institutionally classist. It's, it's, it's I mean, we're in 2022 and we're still having the, that debate here. And I don't think it's going anywhere. And that's why I said, you know, I'm not as optimistic, really, because I think that the working class in Britain today is in a really terrible state Mm -hmm. financially, you know, in regards to what power they've got, in regards to their economic positions, their social positions, the way that the country victim, you know, the way that they blame. Mm -hmm. And I think the working class now are, and and when I'm talking about working class, I mean all working class people. You know, whether you are black or white or Asian, all working class people now are stigmatised through class. I want to turn to your recent work and the lockdown diaries. Mm. And I think that's, I mean, it's fantastic. I can't wait for it to come out. Well, we've only got another week, but the lockdown diaries is uh, coming out next week or, well, end of March. It'll be so it'll be really. And it's been a real labour of love. I mean, actually, it's two years. It's took me two years to do. I'm just starting to realise it's taken me two years. So at the beginning of the pandemic, which would have been about two years ago, yeah. like all of us, I'm sat watching the telly, lockdown. You know, or I don't think we'd quite been locked down then. Not yet, but um, but we, knew, we knew something was coming. Yeah. And I'm watching the telly and I'm listening and I'm thinking, yeah, you know, wonder what's going to happen here like all of us not knowing what's going to happen not really not knowing anything about this and one thing I did know is that working class people's voices would not be heard and it's probably because of my age I am now but I think a lot about the future and on what we leave and I fa- that's why I take my responsibility about being a working class academic really seriously I don't take very much seriously in my life but that I do mm. because I get a lot of working class experience through things that have gone before. And I know that working class people's experiences are rare because we've only been reading and writing for two two generations, really, Mm. two or three generations. And even then, our voices are ignored and manipulated and misrepresented. And because I know all of this... It's always important for me that I make sure that people's voices are somewhere. And um, I've been reading over the last few years. I've got this interest in the Second World War. I'm just interested in it. It's like a hobby. But no, but I, and I don't know, have you ever heard of the mass observation studies? No, never. Okay, so in the Second World War, they had this thing called the mass observation studies. It was run by government, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. Could you imagine that now? It's such yeah. so rubbish. So the government ran something called mass observation studies. So they asked people to write a diary and then send it in to this office in London. And then there was people there that just typed it up and just kept it. And that was it. <laughs> and so throughout the war, there was a few thousand people that was writing daily about their life throughout the war. And that is like the the greatest testimony we've got of everyday life throughout the Second World War. And it's called the Mass Observation Studies. They're fantastic. They went up to about 1950. 
Right. So they started in about 1935, yeah. no later, and then they went and they, they closed them, I think, in 1950. So you've got all of these testimonies of people in the country from all different walks of life that was just writing diaries and sending and posting them off. Mm. So I've read quite a lot of them, and I don't know, have you ever heard of the film called Housewife 49? I've heard of it, yeah. It's, uh, what's the name? Victoria Wood. Victoria Wood. It's Victoria Wood. So Victoria Wood made this film called Housewife 49, and it was based on this woman's diary that she wrote throughout mm-hmm. the war. And they called her Housewife 49 because she was a housewife in 49. Mm. But she wrote, and her name was Nella, and she wrote this diary every day. And then they dramatised it, made it into this film, and it's a fantastic film um, just about this ordinary woman you know, who was very sort of quiet and mousy and but just wrote this diary and her voice would have disappeared in history. There's no way she would have been anywhere. But there's also working class people's voices as well. I mean, Nella was sort of lower middle class, but there was also working class people was writing diaries as well. And one of the things that came out of the mass observation studies was just really how much war propaganda there was about and how much war propaganda has come forward to us. So, you know, the idea of the sort of chirpy cockney, you know, Mm -hmm. putting up with the blitz, et cetera, et cetera. That was not the case. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, the diaries that they had showed that there was great deprivation. There was misery absolute poverty the east end the working class in the east end almost were fighting four walls mm. they were fighting the poverty of being working class the the bombs dropping on them from the blit plus you know the way that the inequality in the country at the time mm. and it's and so when you read those accounts you just think how dare you talk about the you know remove their misery Oh, they were just getting on with it. They weren't getting on with it. They were living and dying in the street. It was a, it was horrific what was happening. And when the pandemic hit, I just thought there's going to be people's voices that need to be heard. Mm. I don't know. I just sat at home like everybody else, and I just put some tweets out going, "Would anybody, you know, write a diary for me?" And I got forty six responses, and and I and I said to them, "Just write for the first month." because none of us knew what was happening and you know to ask people to write more than that you know it's a big ask yeah and I didn't want to put a lot you know pressure on people and also I didn't know what was going on myself Mm. and so I got 46 people who said that they were identified as working class and they wrote a diary and some wrote for the whole month and some didn't Mm. and when they all came in I was really shocked and a bit upset because at the time I was in lockdown as well and on my own and yeah. all this information was coming at me. And then I'd got these people's diaries that were coming in on email mm. and I was like, fucking hell. And it was really big. It felt really big because people were writing Dear Lisa and it was it really, Made I've done research personal. for a lot. I've done, I've done research for a lot of years and I've sat with lots of people and talked about their lives and, but it, it doesn't feel the same as when somebody writes to you. Mm. And you know, when they write in, in a time that's very frightening, people were very frightened. And when I got these diaries, I thought, I want to do something important with these. These are really important. Um, so I went to the university where I worked and I asked them if they would support me in continuing it. And they said no. 
because obviously working class people's voices aren't that important. And so I sat there and I'm used to this because this is how it always is. I'm used to it. And I thought, right, fuck them all. What do I want to do with this? How am I going to best represent this? You know, what beautiful thing do I want to turn? And I'd never wanted it to be a journal article or some Mm. sort of flat, straightforward thing. So I thought I'd love to do like a graphic novel. (laughs) (laughs) I'd imagine that. You know, I've never done anything like that before. Don't know anything about graphics. Not I can do a stick man. That's Mm. it. But in my head, I'm like, I want these beautiful words to be put into a beautiful book and I want them to be beautiful because these people are deserve that. Mm. And it was really important to me that I did something that was beautiful and it just sort of spiraled. So then I was like, Oh, what shall I do? So I put on Twitter again. Does anybody know anything about graphic novel? (laughs) And I swear to God, the gods of anarchy come at me And this guy called Colum, who is a lecturer at Bristol, he's not Bristol, it's the other one, UE, Um, and he's a a lecturer in graphics, Mm -hmm. and he's a working class man, and he said, he just contacted me and went, I'd really like to be involved in this. I was like, ooh. Then my other friend, who is Tony Colville, you know, he's he's just a guy that sort of, you know, he runs lots of, he he does lots of charity stuff and everything. And he said to me, Lisa, if you're going to do this and you're going to do it on your own, because clearly you very, you know, I decided that I was going to make this book my way. I wasn't going to have any debates with publishers and I wasn't going to, and they were going to tell me I'm not allowed to do this and I'm not allowed to do that. And he said, Lisa, you're going to need money. And I was like, I know. He said, right, we'll do a Kickstarter. So he knew how to do a Kickstarter. Colum knew about design. (laughs) And then I've got another guy, a friend of mine who I met, who runs his, he runs like a small anarchist um, publisher called Itchy Monkey Press, right. Mike. And I said to him, you've published books before. What, what do you do? And over the last two years, we've found six artists. Mm-hmm. We've wrote the book. They've illustrated the book. And now we've had it printed and we are publishing it under the name of the Working Class Collective. It was not my name because it was my research, my idea, et cetera, et cetera. But it was the diary writers' lives and words. It was the artists' interpretations. And it was all the work of all those other people. And it was every single pound that people pledged. Mm. So there's no way, you know, and again, you can't do that with a publisher because a publisher would say, no, it's got to be your name. Yeah. And I was like, there's no way this is going to be it. This is a collective. A collective has done this work. Mm. Um, And that's where we came to. So the book is called The Lockdown Diaries of the Working Class by the Working Class Collective. And it comes out in the end of March. We're going to have launches all over the country in the next few months. Mm. And they are going to be celebrations of working class culture and working class experience. And you don't have to be working class to come. You just have to want to celebrate with us. Mm. And you can buy the book or you can just come. Um, I'm hopefully going to get lots of poets and, you know, working class culture together. I really want to celebrate who we are. And then we're setting a website up 
and I'm starting the collective. So it's going to be a collective. Yeah. And I'm going to ask anybody who wants to join to pay about two quid or something for the year. And then you get access to the website where hopefully we start to do what I did. You go, hey, you know, I'd like to do this. And somebody goes, oh, I know how to do that. Mm. Because when you think about what's what we don't have as working class people, we don't have all those networks. You know, we don't have people who go, oh, yeah, you know, I know how to get that funded. Or, you know, we've just got lots of people who's really enthusiastic and have got really good ideas. And um, one of the other things that I find important, but think is really important as well, is the reason we wanted to do the Kickstarter and get the money was because we wanted to pay the artists. Mm. Because far too often, working-class people say, it's all right, I'll do it for free, I'll work for free. Yeah. And it's not, and, and you know what? Free doesn't pay your rent. Yeah. So we paid everybody. Mm. So out of the money that we got from the Kickstarter, we have paid everybody properly. Mm. And I'm really proud of that because yeah. all the artists went, no, it's all right. I was like, no, no, it's not, it's not all right. We have to value each other. And so that's one of the things I want to make sure that is on the website is that we talk about money and talk about wanting to be paid for things. There's nothing wrong with that. Mm. There's nothing, and also making people value what we do. It's really easy to do it when I'm just thinking about someone else. When it's me, it's horrible. Mm. I'm still going, I'll do it for free. But that, and, and do you know what? I'm all right to do that for me, but I mm. can advocate for others. And, you know, and one, and one day there'll be people who advocate for me. Mm. You know, there'll be people who go, Lisa, in fact, no, it happens to me all the time. People go, Lisa, will you come and talk at our event? And I'll go, yeah, yeah, of course. Well. And they'll go, we will pay you. And I'll go, no, it's all right. <laughs> and they go, no, you have to be paid. Yeah. And I think that's really... It's one of those things about being working class. We don't like taking money for things that we believe in. And it, and we don't like taking money off each other either. Because mm. we go, no, it's, you know, and I, and, I, and I want us, and I know why we do it, but there are also unscrupulous people out there who take the piss. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, and, and they go, right, you're not going to get paid this time, but you're going to really enjoy it. And it's going to go on your CV. I'm like, ah. Yeah, no, sorry. And if we don't look after each other, who else is going to look after us? So the Working Class Collective hopefully will be a collective where we share ideas and work together and become creative. And if any of us wants to publish our own book, we go, hey, I can do that. I know how to do that. Yeah. Or if one of us goes, oh, you know, I need a Kickstarter, somebody goes, I know how to do that. (laughs) Um, And I don't mind begging. (laughs) Because, you know, when we did the Kickstarter, it killed me. Mm. It really upset me. Do you know, having to keep asking for money, it really upset me. It really, I felt like a beggar. Mm. And I know it wasn't, and I know all the rational arguments, but it didn't make me feel good. And that's why this book will be really special. Because people gave a pound to, to or more to, to make it happen and the artist got paid for it and they loved it you know I gave the artist the diaries so what I did is I went through the diaries and anonymized them all and then we gave the diaries to the artist and instead of me saying you know illustrate that or illustrate that or illustrate that I just went you know you're working yeah. the artists were all working class as well mm. and so I was like do what you think is right so it's really a beautiful 
and you wait till you see the book it's beautiful it's hardback we've paid for really expensive paper the images are beautiful there's excerpts of all the diaries in it and it's got a lovely lovely pink ribbon in it and we've got a little quote on the pink ribbon from one of the diaries I had two choices one was from a diary which said I feel like crying all the time and the other one said all joggers are cunts <laughs> so guess which one I went I hope all joggers are cunts. <laughs> yes, I did. I absolutely did. Because I could, I imagine the publishers going, no, you can't do you that. You can't have that. Yeah. And I thought, I can do what I want. Yeah. Because I am publishing this book. This is our book, all of our book. And it's it's been, it has been difficult. I mean, doing a book in a pandemic is hard enough. Self-publishing it and it being a graphic novel yeah. as well with original, all original artwork. It's been difficult and, you know, and having, and what we aim to do with it will be difficult again. But I don't know. It's been really ground. I think it's a groundbreaking book. I mean, I can't wait to see it, to read it. I can't wait to see it as well. I mean, I've, yeah. yeah, it's actually in the printer. I mean, I didn't know, you know, I, I, nobody knows how to do any of this stuff until they do it. But I am hoping that from the Working Class Collective, we can do much more of this. Mm. You know, that we that under that term, working class collective, people can come in and say, I want to publish a book. And then we go, right, okay, let's help we let's let's find ways to help you. And I, I think for me, that's empowering us. Lisa, where can people keep up to date with everything that you're doing with the working class collective and everything that you do? Well, we're working on a website at the moment. <laughs> so that's gonna be up probably in the next two weeks so actually perhaps when this podcast comes out it'll probably be already up Mm. so the working class collective is going to be up and running as a website where you can order the book where you can find out where the launches are you can come and meet all the i mean the art i'm going to bring the artists it's going to be you know we get we have in my and soap boxes mm-hmm. to stand on so anybody can stand on a soapbox. <laughs> so all of these things will be on the website we have got a twitter account i think called the i don't even know what it's called collective working class or something yeah. and then obviously there's my twitter account you can follow me if you've got a strong stomach lisa thank you so much for talking to me it's been brilliant roller coaster <laughs> of everything working class and thank you for everything that you do Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Not at all. Lovely talking to you and can't wait to see you at a launch event. You will in Birmingham. We're coming to Birmingham. (laughs) Radio. Yeah, okay. Okay. Bye. And that is the episode. I'd love to thank Lisa for talking to me more about her work and for you for listening to this episode of What is Your Working Class? Thank you so much for listening and hopefully hear from me soon.